Welcome to the We Love Arabian Horses podcast, sponsored by Markel, the insurance with horse sense. Let's jump right in. This is Paul Costa with the We Love Arabian Horses podcast, and I'm thrilled today to have Greg Knowles with us. Greg, hello to you. Hi, Paul. How are you? Doing great here. I'm in Austin, Texas, and I presume you're there in Scottsdale, yes? Yes, I am. It's trying to be spring, but it's still cold here, believe it or not. It's kind of funny. We've had the same problem here. Well, listen, Greg, why don't we start with how you got involved with Arabian Horses? We like to hear from everybody, kind of how did you first find Arabian Horses or get started riding and what led to your passion? So that's kind of an interesting story. Graduated from the University of Washington in 1975. Radio television, got my first job in Sun Valley, Idaho. I was the morning GK, the DJ, and loving life, doing what I thought I was going to do because I really ultimately thought I was going to be a stand-up comic. So one day I had had too much coffee and turned into Howard Stern and got fired. So the next scene of the show is I'm sitting at home trying to explain to my mother what I was going to do the rest of my life. (laughs) That's funny. And so I met a kid, guy I played high school football with, named Doug Lyle, had pure Polish Arabians, Lyle Arabians, in Gig Harbor, Washington. I played high school football with the guy. And he says, I got these Arabian horses. You should come see them. So I went up to his farm, and I fell, Paul, instantly in love with these animals. The smell, the shavings, the horses nickering, the the breath, because it's a little damp in the northwest out of their nostrils. There was a stallion named Stargard, who I just loved. He was a citrus son out of a boss daughter, and he was just magnificent for me, you know, like, oh, my God. And I just fell in love with Arabian horses. And um, I had to go back and tell my mother that I was thinking about doing that. And, of course, that didn't work very well. I was her first child that got a college education, and she was just not happy with the fact that I was going to be in the horse business instead of in the communication or comedian business. And right. uh, so I had to convince them that it was a great life. So I would pin pictures up of Kenny Rogers or uh, Wayne Newton on the refrigerator, Mike Nichols, so that she saw famous people were involved. And that seemed to comfort her a little bit. But the rest of the story is a long story, and I'd love to tell you another time. But basically, that's how I found the Arabian horse. I went to Doug Lyles after about a month there. I realized that I needed to go to a graduate program. I applied at Lasma, Nicholas and Longpre, and I got the job at Kales. And I was just a bunk guy. You know, I, I brought my whole – I was president of fraternity in college. I brought my whole resume Dr. Kale looked at me like I was out of my mind. He puts all my stuff aside and he says, you know, will you work for three fifty a month and work in the bunk, live in the bunkhouse? And I said, sure. He shook my hand. I was now working for Kale's Arabian, which we <laughs> later became Carho. And literally, as we shook the hands, the first truck of Russian horses arrived at the farm in Kirkland, Washington. Wow. Yeah, that's how it all started for me. And then to be able to stay alive, I worked at a disco every night. I got up at 7, fed the horses at 7 o'clock, worked till 4, got to a disco at 6, worked till 2 in the morning and did that for a couple of years and worked my way up at the farm at Kales. And finally one day, you know how it works when you think you know more than your boss, which I didn't, but I thought I did. So out I went. I grabbed my one Ralph and Loren shirt and started decided to be a horse trainer, halter horse trainer. Wow. But actually not not just halter performance and everything. And uh, that was December 12th, 1979. I opened my doors to Arabian expressions, which should have been called Arabian depressions. But uh, 
was it was a great it was great. I was in love with the horses. Didn't know half of what I thought I did. It began. And, and how old were you then? I was 24, 25. Okay. And how long was it until you acquired the Magic Dream plant? Oh, uh, well, let me think about that. Probably, oh, maybe longer than, for a long, long time, I was married to Lisa who's now Lisa Markley, and we worked and killed ourselves to build a business. We rode some horses, and we leased barns, and we got by hook or by crook horses in training, and we just started to build, and we'd win a prize here or there and go to the horse shows. And, you know, one day, I think it was, I want to say 1992, so all those years, I actually already had a judge's card before I got Magic Dream because I wanted, my, my feelings was the stallions that I was going to represent was the real deal. And I thought this Ali Jamal son, Black Bay, was the real deal. And so Lisa and I talked about it. We created this Magic Dream partnership, which was kind of a unique sort of quasi-syndication syndicate partnership. And on we went. And um, for a while, it was really crazy because people would come to the farm in Washington not to see me, not to see maybe more Lisa than me to see because she was a great horsewoman. But they came to see Magic Dream. You know, the Stones came, Kenny Rock, a lot of famous people came to see this Black Bay Ali Jamal son. And, you know, I picked him because I loved his damn line, which was Bosk, and I picked him because of the supply and demand curve. Ali Jamal had gone back to Brazil, never to come back again because he was a positive pyroplasmosis horse and couldn't get back into the country. And so I had one of the four or five top Ali Jamal sons. So the path was relatively easy if the horse could produce. And we just worked our butt off. We just worked hard. And, uh, you know, every baby, I remember taking his first seven babies to Scottsdale, and all seven went top ten in classes of 100 yearling fillies. Keith Kritsky led Sweet Dreams, which is QR Mark's mother for me. We used to own him. We had lots of these new sons his first year, and on he went. I'll never forget this, Paul. After the class, and we went back to our stalls, and we turned around, there were uh, like 100 people out there wanting breeding contracts. And that was the wow. beginning of my dream. So, Greg, tell us about how you ended up leaving uh, Washington and going to Arizona. What happened to cause all that? Well, we had a farm, and we loved it. We were in Spanaway, Washington. But I, San Diego boy, I love the sunshine. And, you know, it dawned on me one day, we were going to Scottsdale every year, for Scottsdale the show, we'd arrive earlier and earlier. We'd come with a group of horses a month early, and I thought, I love it here, and it's Hollywood or the Arabian horse world. If, if you're going to be in the movies, you go to Hollywood. If you're going to be in the Arabian horse business at that time, you went to Scottsdale. So we packed up, sold the farm, and moved to Scottsdale. Wow. And we weren't really sure what we were going to do. We leased a small little place, bought a house, had Magic Dream and a couple other horses, we sold a filly to one of our clients. It was ironic. Listen to this story. We were leaving the day we sold our farm in Spanaway. The gentleman who bought the farm had an echo daughter, weanling coming yearling, that he took out of the trail. It was rainy, muddy. And I said, how much for that filly? And he gave me a price. It was $35,000, I think. And she was beautiful. That filly the next year was my national champion yearling filly, my first national champion of the four that I, I had four in a row in a reserve. And the irony of the reserve national champion, Paul, is that she too, it was that MOS program, you know, where more of the same, but she, she was higher on two of the three cards, but she ended up reserve. And so we had four Phillies national champion in a row wow. and one reserve national. And those were those days when we made three or four cuts and there were 90 horses trying. It was an amazing time and not an easy thing to do, but, Certainly a great memory for me. Well, and I would assume there's probably no one that's won four 
national champion Philly classes or even Colt classes ever, maybe. I, I think I'm last time I talked to some of my friends, I think I'm the only one that's done it yet. But, you know, someday that'll be broken. But it was sure a great run. It was a beautiful Absolutely. run. I, I, I can remember leading Phillies at the regional level during that run, and certain judges look at me and go, Greg, this Philly's beautiful. She might be better than the one you had last year. So it sort of became a, a whole sort of thing that I was right. having these Phillies and having this great run. Well, that's good. Congratulations. Moving on to a couple other topics. I know some things today are very much of an interest for you. Why don't we talk about those? Start off the, the judging masterclass concept that you had been developing for the last couple of years. Well, you know, as you know, I've been a judge for about 35 years, and my specialty is halter, and I've been honored to judge all over the world. I mean, I've judged in South America probably over 25 times. I've judged nationals. And, you know, what's, as things change, we always want to progress to stay ahead and, and be with the curve so our industry can continue to progress. But it's not, it's not a secret that as the show and the classes for halter horses started to thin out, the numbers weren't at the shows. And so I'm watching judges, good judges, judge horse shows that are performance guys, and they're judging those very few halter classes at some regional horse shows, for example, and they're just not getting the experience they need at the highest level. And a judge's school, AHA's judge's school, they do a great job, but they don't spend the time anymore in halter. They spend it on, you know, ranch riding and things that are very commercial and very popular now, which I understand. But one of the things that's very important was that we absolutely, positively, if we're going to show $500,000 horses, we needed judges that were capable of not making a mistake that they knew what a four or $500,000 horse was, that they'd been around, they had the experience. So I thought, we don't have enough of those. We're an aging group, and we're starting to lose some of those great, you know, Michael Byatt, David Boggs, great judges, great horsemen. And, you know, they don't judge very much anymore, except for specialty stuff that they're invited to do. So we're losing some of us that spent our whole life in that halter environment that understand all the nuances. I mean, we evaluate halter horses every day of our lives. We truly understand the difference between a $100,000 horse and a four or $500,000 horse. And so for the last couple of years, I've been writing and writing my plan and what I'm thinking, how I want to do this, and I just want a master class. I just want to invite people, particularly carded judges, that have the interest to be a halter judge and be a better halter judge and share mine and maybe Michael, maybe David, who else would like to join me, and you, Paul, who are super knowledgeable, and sort of talk about all those nuances. I have a complete outline to talk about things that you'll do in the ring, things that you'll make decisions on. What is the worst leg fault for you? Which one will you forgive? How do you compare scoring against comparative? All the things that I have experienced so that when these people face this, after they take a master's class, They'll be better prepared to sit down right. and judge those horses and not make a mistake and not miss a great horse because they miss the forest by looking at the trees and they're just not prepared because they have not had the exposure. And I think it's very important if we're going to grow and we're going to make these horses famous and more valuable, one, it has to be fair and honest, and two, it has to be good judging. We cannot walk away and say, you know, oh, boy, that horse showed the best, or, oh, I love that entrance. We have to have judges that have a great criteria and an understanding of what they're trying to do in that arena. Well, and you mentioned it, exposure is really the biggest problem because 
there's probably plenty of judges, and let's just talk about the USA in particular, that they would be excellent halter and breeding judges if they only had the chance to judge enough to get good enough at it, that they are confident in the ring when they are going to those big shows like Scottsdale or World Cup or the U.S. National. They just don't get enough experience. So you're trying to give them some more exposure in a confined environment. What it started for me is I was in Del Mar about five years ago, and I counted the halter horses that entered that show. Now, Del Mar, reason one, was a big deal for all halter aficionados. 16 halter horses in the entire show. The ones that were there were qualifying for nationals, and they were special. But how does a horseman, a good English Western Arabian horseman judge, be able to adjudicate when they don't have the experience? and they don't have the, the numbers to keep up. So that's why I thought, how great if some of us would still get to do that every day, do it worldwide, we would be the best teachers for that. We could help them get a better perspective on what their job is. And there's a, you know, I will say this, I think the best horsemen in the world and women are the Arabian performance judges and horsemen. I watch those performance classes and the, the ability to collect and send an Arabian horse forward, whether it's Western, Hunter, or English, is amazing how good these guys are now. They're great horses. Yeah. They just need more exposure, and and that means a master's class. Just like if I was going to really, I would love. God, I can't imagine going to a world class performance master class. That would be so fun for right. me. So ultimately, what we want to do is we want to give this class. Maybe we do it at a show, but it's going to be a lot of classroom stuff. Not notes. Not anything. It's not going to be anything you have to redo. Most of these people understand a leg. It's more more about thinking outside the box, looking at the general nuances, creating the experiences, us sort of lending our experiences to the people and things that happen and what to expect and, and do it in a classroom sort of environment at a major horse show and see the class and then come back in and just talk about specifically those horses. But let's just talk about the act of judging and how to, to do the best you can do. And once they define what they're trying to accomplish, they'll get very good at it. Well, I've seen the curriculum, and I've seen part of it even in presentation format, and it's, it's really off the charts. It's excellent. Um, you're so good at this, and I'm really glad that you've taken the time to build this entire, what would probably be a two- or three-day curriculum that you've just built in your spare time when you had nothing better to do, right? <laughs> yeah, there's nothing better to do exactly right. And, then, and you know, Paul, to, to transition a little bit, I mean, you and I have talked at great length about how we need to continue to help this industry grow and, and go forward. I mean, I know that I'm at the twilight of my career, but I love judging. I love the Arabian horses and I love being part of all of it. And so it's important to me that my legacy, something I gave over 40 years of my life continues to go forward. And so what's very important to me is, is different things like newcomer seminars. Mike Knowles and myself, my wife and I, we put together a 107-page PowerPoint presentation for newcomers. So we, wow. if you get invited or seek without, we'll spend a weekend together and we'll do this PowerPoint. And it takes you from day one, why an Arabian horse? What are the options of being involved in the Arabian horse? How the friendships are formed, the business reform, the tax implications, the success of being a breeder, the standing of a stallion. All those things are included in this presentation to just all of a sudden give a newcomer who knows nothing about this, like, hey, this is pretty interesting. Let me get more involved. And we've done that at a smaller scale in the past, but the new program is going to be really exciting and, and full of energy and full of knowledge. So I'm excited about that. And then 
one of the things that you're doing that I want to be part of, and I'm kind of envious that you that you're doing it, but I think you'll be amazing at it, is you're talking about bringing back potentially the old Arabian horse fairs that were so successful. I remember in Reno where the stallions and the show and all the education and people came all together and just sort of rejoiced. We weren't competing. We were rejoicing in the love and knowledge and education of the Arabian horse. And, Paul, I'm so excited that you're going to do that. Well, I tell you what, it's, you know, I kind of think of it as a festival, and they called it the fair back in the day, and I think all of us went to it. Um, and what a fantastic event. And if we could bring those together in such a way that all the different marketing organizations in our breed can participate in the ways that work for them, do it a combined event that really supports the entire breed, whether those are regional or local. And we've got a committee that's exploring this and has been working on it for several months now. I'm glad that you support it for the marketing of the Arabian horse. We've got to be able to create more of these outreach events, kind of going back to your educational program. What about the Arabian Horse Fair? But also you've got farms around the country presenting curriculums like you're developing in numerous more local events, like 100 or 200 a year. That would be a phenomenal start to bringing more people into the business. Would you you say that would work? I think it'd be perfect, and I think it'd be a great way. We've got to sort of get together and put our heads down and go to work and make this all happen. People that discover the Arabian Horse, they love the Arabian Horse. And, and I rarely see anybody that has once discovered it doesn't love it. It's sort of like Yellowstone did for the quarter horses. We have to create something that pushes us forward and gets the attention of the American person, you know, the US, uh, America, to see these horses and to understand how meaningful and how wonderful they are. Right, right. You've got to find ways through social media and other normal media venues to get folks into and touching an Arabian horse on a farm or a horse show. That's where the experience happens, in person. I agree 100%. And with that, we'll create a little liquidity for the business side of it. Well, exactly. You've got to build a customer base, and that includes folks at the grassroots level all the way to the top. We just are seeming a little top-heavy right now and need to re-fortify the grassroots. There's all kinds of ways that they might get involved in it. It doesn't necessarily have to do with a horse show. I want to tell you an old story about Dr. Kale. In the old days, we didn't have transported semen, and we had Tornado Muscat and Ariadne at our farm. Friday night, the trailers would be coming into the farm with people bringing their mares to breed to our stallions, and they would come. And Saturday, Dr. Kale would have lunch for everybody. There might be 35, 40 people there with their mares, and he would walk and talk about breeding and his relationship with the LaCroix family and the Ganey family and this cross and that great horse and how they saw Boss and Dornaba in Poland. Think about springtime, sitting on a knoll in the grass, smelling the grass and hearing the horses in the background and watch some famous breeder tell you all about it. I mean, that's, that is the Arabian horse. Yeah. Well, and those kind of things are nostalgic today, but they were phenomenal back then. And as we do more of these things, we'll have more people having that exposure. It's different than going to a horse show. Exactly. I mean, we love that too, but you know, there's more to a horse show with the life of the Arabian than a horse show for sure. Right. Well, and that brings up the last topic is, working harder to develop an open market, a broader market of folks that are coming into the breed at all levels. You want to talk about the open market? Well, I think that the market is that we have to get to them. We have to find them, meet with them. So things like the PowerPoint presentation, and I know that you have a very special sort of program that we can reach out to new people and then funnel them into different farms. And they come and they learn about the Arabian horse and they didn't have any exposure 
and that we can teach these people about the Arabian horse. And the other thing that we'll do, develop some major auctions that bring interest and value, sort of like the Hollywood glitz and glamour, that will bring some of those people. And they bring their friends, and they sit down, and they just can't believe. I mean, I moved to a new neighborhood, and the stallion that I managed just went champion stallion at Scottsdale. And my neighbors sort of look at me and go, what, what is it that you do? So we had them out, and what a miracle for us. They came to the horse show and watched our stallion go champion, and it was just amazing how fun that was for them. And now they want to know more about the next thing about Arabian horses. Right. When can we come to the farm, and when can we see a show, and when can we pet some horses? Can my little nephew come see the horses? So it's all exposure. Well, and often I think when we talk about building the market, we we talk about lesson programs, and most people assume lesson programs are for kids. There are lesson programs for adults too, but there's also – Lots of folks, their kids are out of the house, they're empty nesters now, or they want to do something different and fun, and they might find the Arabian horse as part of their life. I, I could name a dozen of them off the top of my head of people you and I know, that right. that's how they found the Arabian horse later in life. And those folks get involved much more quickly than waiting for someone to learn how to ride a horse over a period of a couple of years and lessons. So this open market and this particular target audience is right for us, I think. I agree. I think 100%. I mean, what a camaraderie for all of them to come. Just think about if you had a, a five, six, seven, ten people that would just come in the afternoon and sort of learn how to walk a horse, how to brush a horse, how to interact with an Arabian. I mean, that's magical. It's just magical. Right. Here's the moment that we're we're working towards is having that kind of thing happen, not only in the United States, but also globally, because in other parts of the world are having similar issues with wanting growth, and this could stimulate for them as well. Greg, thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Do you have any closing remarks? Thank you for having me. I appreciate it a bunch. Let's just all be the best we can be in living the Arabian horse life. From me, and we love Arabian horses and our crowd. We appreciate it. We'll have you back on the podcast soon. Thank you so much. Thank you, Paul. This is Austin, director of the We Love Arabian Horses podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, make sure that you click subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. Comments, questions, guest ideas, feel free to send me an email at austin at welovearabianhorses.com. Thanks for listening.